0: Welcome to episode 000048 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'd like to start off, as always, by acknowledging the land from which I am broadcasting, the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging, and I send my respects to any mob that are out there listening at the moment, but um, I send my respects to all of you. Um, Well, we're into week whatever. Of this thing coming into Triple R World HQ this evening it is heartening. Heartening to see streets comparatively deserted, stocks at supermarket and is now to seem to be a little bit more predictable or reliable, which is important in obvious ways and not so obvious ways. Now here's a not so obvious way. There was a um, report in the Age yesterday by Richard Baker that explained how binge buying in metropolitan supermarkets impacts food supplies in remote Aboriginal communities. The IGA supermarkets in Halls Creek and Fitzroy Crossing, for instance, in Western Australia's Kimberley region, have not been able to get enough basic staples such as flour, cooking oil, corned beef, dog food and toilet paper to serve the more than a dozen nearby remote communities relying on them. So the lack of supplies is a potential life and death situation in those remote communities, with um, obviously high Indigenous populations already affected by you know, serious health and socioeconomic issues. As I've mentioned in weeks past, the, the comorbidity for the Aboriginal community is uh, far greater than that of the, uh, than the uh, the non-Aboriginal community uh, and a classic example of that is just uh, heart disease for instance, it's almost twice as high and we um, uh, also suffer uh, type 2 diabetes uh, uh, at a rate of 30% across the uh, population so the When you stack COVID-19 on top of that, that becomes a serious, serious issue. So just like many of your local convenience stores, the ones that are in the burbs, remote supermarkets actually just buy their produce from larger supermarkets and then upmark the price and sell it forward to the community. So if the demand goes up in the major cities, as it has done in recent weeks, you know, we're buying 150% of what we actually need. Um, then eventually, that has a flow-on effect for smaller and remote communities. So, if you're thinking of doing some binge buying in the coming weeks, don't. You risk you risk starving communities in remote communities of this country that don't have the luxury of being able to shop around. So, I hate I hate I hate this term now, but we're all in this together. The reason I hate it is because it reminds me of that corny Ben Lee song. But um, we are actually all in this together. And the actions that we take, no matter where we live, can have an impact on people, even in the remote, remote, remotest parts of, uh, of this country. Um, and it's also interesting to note that uh, you know, the Prime Minister announced that uh, people over the age of 70 really should be so, so social isolating the whole time now. Um, the risk to their health is too great. And he also said, pretty much in the same sentence, that uh, Aboriginal people over the age of 50 should be doing the same thing so when it comes down to the actual practicalities of dealing with pandemics like this what it actually means in real terms is that the the, the gap the, the 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 much-famed gap is actually 20 years you know it's not eight years it's not 10 years the, the, the gap in life expectancy between aboriginal people and non-aboriginal people is actually 20 years so that means a whole bunch of my friends, if they follow the guidelines, cannot or should not leave the house because they are under greater risk than the rest of the population to um, suffer complications if they were to contract covid nineteen so it's', um, it's a it 's a, it's a necessary step but it 's a it 's a sad indictment on uh, the the country and and the way that people aboriginal people have been treated historically and it 's um something that won't go away and it's actually something that gets amplified every time we, um, we have a crisis in this country. Anyway, on tonight's show, I will be speaking with Palawa GP Dr Tanya Schram. Tanya is a board member of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association. There were disturbing reports emerging last week with a number of racist incidents involving Aboriginal patients. So we'll talk to her about the danger associated with racism in this time of pandemic and we'll talk to her about a whole bunch of other things too and later in the show uh, we'll take a break from COVID-19 and we'll have a conversation with Levi Mackenzie Kirkbright, who was uh, the Youth Affairs Council Victoria's first Aboriginal young thinker in residence and he wrote uh, an essay called Sovereignty A Way Forward which is a very good read so we'll speak to him about that. So together, if we um, just do five simple things we can get through this, uh, little, <laughs> this little pandemic of ours, uh, the, the advice is pretty simple, really. You must stay home if you can. You must maintain pristine personal hygiene. Wash your hands at least 20 seconds. If you want to learn how to do it properly, Google Gordon Ramsay's hand washing. If you want a masterclass on how to do it, wipe down services wherever you can remember. Only go out if you need to see a health professional. Require medicines need to shop for what you actually need or for daily exercise. You need to maintain a social distance from one another when you do that, at least 1.5 metres from each other in public. And there will be no gatherings of more than two people in public unless you're a family or a group that live together. And then there's a final piece. There's a fifth piece of uh, advice that um, I think the Prime Minister and the Chief Medical Officer made very clear and step five is that you must listen to R always um, and so with that uh, the management here are doing a fantastic job of uh, keeping, keeping um, this, this beautiful radio station, this beautiful community on air and um, we'll see what the coming weeks and uh, months bring. But um, we are all here despite the many, many challenges. And uh, keeping this station afloat, as you know, means the show must go on. So hopefully, we'll get an opportunity to uh, build a bridge over this crisis and uh, see each other on the other side for a big hug. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Even though we're only still sort of revel- relatively new into this COVID 19 crisis, there have already been reports of uh, racism towards a- Aboriginal patients as they try as recommended to get screened for the virus. The Australian Indigenous Doctors Association uh, received some very disturbing feedback that in a New South Wales Regional Hospital a patient who identified as Aboriginal was identified was denied testing because priority treatment would only be offered to, quote-unquote, real Aborigines. And the uh, association was also received messages from um, a Western Australian hospital that uh, a comment was made that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander pa- patients only get it because they don't wash their hands. Um, apparently, we're all dirtier than the rest. Um, so... Um, we thought that we'd get someone from the um, Australian Indigenous Doctors Association in this, to speak to us about this and um, have a sort of a nuanced conversation about how, during pandemics like this, racism can actually kill people. So on the line to talk about that and other measures being taken to protect Aboriginal people and communities from the virus is Dr Tanya Shram, who is a Palawa woman. And a general practitioner based in Tasmania. She's also on the board of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association, and she's on the line with us now. Tanya, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Um, First of all, I'm I'm asking guests, every guest, this question: Um, uh, How um, are you? How is your family, and how are your friends uh, coping at the moment?
1: Yeah, I think we're all coping quite okay. I think uh, it's been quite a big change just for me working as a general practitioner, starting to do a lot more things over the phone. Mm. But um, thankfully, we're all well and healthy at the moment.
0: So, um, you know, we've had the telehealth measures, uh, you know, um, promoted and announced by, by the government recently. What What is that meaning for you in your general practice? Is it, are you seeing a, an upsurge in telehealth?
1: Yeah, we're definitely seeing an upsurge in telehealth um, where the majority of the people that I would um, speak to for the day are all over telehealth. There are very few patients coming into the clinic at the moment. Mm -hmm. And thankfully to the new government initiative, as of Monday, all patients can be seen over telehealth and we actually have the ability to bill and do um, Aboriginal health checks, mental health um, care plans, um, mental health consultations as well as standard um, general practice items, we can do it all over telehealth. So I think that's great. I think not only has this um, pandemic um, caused a great change in the way we do things, but it's also caused an upsurge, not just in people wanting to come in because they've got a fever and cough and cold symptoms and they want advice on what they need to do, Mm. but it's also caused an upsurge in mental health issues, um, you know, with a lot of people ringing up because they're feeling really isolated. Not going outside the house, unsure. You know when if they can go out, what they should do. Fear of getting sick and unwell. I think um, you know I've been really thankful that we've got the definitely the mental health item numbers on the telehealth at the moment. Um, I think that's great, and we'll also be able to do our Aboriginal health checks and things. So we'll be able to get our patients in and do their health checks and make sure that. Um, Everything's there, so if you know the worst scenario happens and somebody does become unwell, um, all of their health information would be all updated um, on their files, ready to be accessed if need be in those worst case scenarios.
0: Yeah, I think something that we're um, we're all sort of realising during this um, this crisis is uh, what social beings we are. You know, we are really. Um, you you may think that you're um you know you're you're a bit of a recluse or that you're a um, a bit of an introvert, but gee you miss that um you miss that social interaction and you actually miss the physicality of, of that so um it is going to um unfortunately have an impact on a lot of people's mental health mm, I
1: think so I think it's having a great impact i've already seen a number of people um yeah. Uh, that I've done telehealth consults with that are concerned about their mental health as we've become more and more locked down and not being able to leave
0: the house. Now, to, um, to the reports that, um, that that came into to um, AEDA last week, the uh, Australian mm. Indigenous Doctors Association, um, racism uh, even at the the quote unquote best of times is uh, something that affects people's health. But racism in healthcare settings where Judgment calls are beginning to be made and where decisions have to be made. If you put a racist Ophalae on that, that can actually um, potentially kill people.
1: It definitely does. I think the comments that were definitely made, you know, know, will only test real Aborigines, you know, um, Aboriginal people only get it because they don't wash their hands. It really highlights the institutional racism that exists in our health sector and the interpersonal racist attitudes of some of the doctors and the healthcare staff that work Within our healthcare system. And I think, particularly at this time, you know, they have, you know, blatant racism definitely can never be tolerated. Mm. But at the moment, with a pandemic, what's going to happen is that person that turns up to be tested is then going to go home and say, oh, this is what's happened. They won't test me. And then what happens is the rest of the family takes on that attitude. Well, it's no good going up there because they won't even test you. They won't even you know, see you or offer you the appropriate care and then the message gets out to our mob that you don't bother going to the hospital if you get sick because nobody really cares. And that just means that more of our mob will come off not being tested and and not receive the treatment that they require. And therefore we will see more um, people... You know, die or become incredibly unwell as a result of the pandemic, and it doesn't need to happen. I think it's about time, uh, as doctors and healthcare workers, that we, you know, that people sit down and realise that, um, you know, stereotypes have no place when it comes to providing healthcare for people.
0: Yeah, it's, it's particularly frightening when, you know, um, if this thing goes as you know some of the models suggest, and we have more and more people fronting to. Um, emergency departments or to uh, COVID um, screening centres with, with, with potential symptoms, um, there, are, there will eventually have to be a number of judgement judgment calls made on who you know p- may get treatment and who may not get treatment. And if there's a, if there's a racist overlay to that or if there's, a, there's an attitudinal overlay to that that says, okay, well, um, you know, this is a very basic example, but if their life expectancy is only 58 or 60 then maybe we should be, you know, um, uh, seeing the, the, the non-Aboriginal people who have much greater life expectancy um, first. It's, it's it's that kind of life or death situation that can be infected by, um, by racism.
1: Mm, I think that's quite true. I think, you know, we need to make sure, um, and I think definitely as um, Indigenous doctors, we're there, definitely at the moment trying to advocate that, you know, these stereotyped ideas and the prejudice of people, they need to look and realise that it has no place and we need to make sure that when our mob are getting sick that they are being treated appropriately and be given the you know, the care that they so rightfully deserve. That's quite, you know, culturally appropriate that they are considered for those ICU beds with the same respect as we can, you know, they would consider anybody else who became unwell um, because that's what we deserve as people. Is there, um,
0: is there going to be any sort of recourse to, you know, or learning opportunities for uh, those those um, hospitals and healthcare centres that have, um, you know, sort of been, uh, I guess, uh, you know, shamed so far in terms of um, the way they're treating Aboriginal patients in terms of racism? So we can only
1: hope that out of this, does become some, you know, that we do get some positive change. I think, um, you know, we have been doing a lot of work in the healthcare sector in general um, to improve cultural safety, um, you know, so we get a better delivery of care for our mob. But I think so far we have actually had um, the hospital involved in the New South Wales case has actually made a formal apology. Mm -hmm. Um, I do know that that's happened, but I think it has to go, you know, far beyond that. It's not just the apology that's going to fix this situation. It's going to be where we go to in the future that it doesn't actually happen again, that it's not just one person. It's often propagated by a number of people or the institution itself. So I think it's time um, that all hospitals, um, all healthcare settings, look at the way in which Aboriginal people are treated and they need to move past these stereotyped ideas that they have. And hopefully this is what we can look at and that after this pandemic that we can continue. We've kind of got the government on board at the moment. They have been helping, um, you know, allow us to isolate our remote communities, stopping um, fly-in and out workers, getting, trying our best when we've got limited um, medical resources to get, because a lot of our fly-in and out doctors actually come from New Zealand. So when the borders closed, a lot of remote communities have gone without um, doctors. Um, they have given us the ability to address those situations. So we're trying to get, you know, make sure that we've got adequate medical staff, particularly in the scenarios where they're all going to have to isolate for 14 days before they can start working in the community. So we've got the government on board helping us get all of these in, things into place. So hopefully we can keep them in that space as we move on from this pandemic to make sure that we do a lot more work in the cultural safety side of things for our hospital and healthcare settings as well. So that it's not just a short-term thing for the pandemic.
0: It was pleasing and um, you know disheartening at the same time to see the prime minister, um, you know, provide the very strong uh, guidance and recommendation that Aboriginal people fifty and over should be self-isolating. Um, um, pretty much as well, the whole way through this thing, whereas for the rest of the population, it is, is 70. It's um, saddening because it's an indictment as, as to where we're at, but at the same time, it's absolutely necessary, isn't
1: it? Yeah, look, it is necessary because, uh, you know, the risk is higher for our mob, definitely 50 and over. Um, but the sad reality is this is a reflection on where we are as a country that we haven't put... The measures in place to provide better health care and um, close that gap we said that we were going to close because if we'd done that you know if we'd done the hard work behind that you know Aboriginal people would be at the same risk as everybody else but that's not the case so the pandemic's just highlighting that that gap is still there and very significant and um, yeah for our mob I think it's really important that if you're 50 and over that you try and stay at home um you know, not leave the house, try and utilise family and so forth to provide the groceries and things like that. Make sure that you use the telehealth to catch up with your doctor um, and your health service and make sure that your health checks, things like that, are up, uh, are all up to date. Um, I think that's really important. But, yeah, it is sad that we're recommending that Aboriginal people who are, 20, you know, 20 years younger than the general population have to isolate because of their high risk.
0: I'm speaking with Dr Tanya Shram, who's a Palawa doctor down in Tasmania, but she's also a board member of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association. Um, through that association, Tanya, you're um, connected with other Indigenous doctors right throughout the country. Um, are you hearing reports on, on how they're coping um, at the moment? Yeah, we're trying to, as an organisation, run a bit of a uh, catch-up
1: twice a week, so we can look after our members as we move through this pandemic. So we can, um, that's for our students and doctors, um, so that we can support each other throughout, um, our journey through this, uh, difficult time, uh, which I think will be really important to have that bit of, uh, peer support, um, for ourselves as well, especially if this does get into our communities, I think, um, it's going to be very difficult.
0: Yeah, I think one of the um, one of the positive aspects of what's what's happening at the moment is that there is a a very increased and in acute awareness of the um, people now thinking about the health and well being of uh, of medical professionals, and um, you know we've traditionally thought as, as as doctors as you know almost bulletproof and um, um, people that um, can handle any sorts of sort of situation, but we're recognising now, I think, as a community that. Um, doctors are just as uh, human as the rest of us and they have the same fears and the the same anxieties um, and that we need to be mindful of that when when we're um, going through this and presenting ourselves to to health professionals.
1: Yeah, I think it'll be, I think particularly at the moment with the pandemic on our um, doorstep, I think it's going to be a difficult time for you know all doctors and definitely if we see anything happen here that we've seen happen overseas I think most doctors will probably be very good at um, putting a smile on and getting the job done to the day but the end of it when they come home, or at the end of all of this, I think um, you know we need to look at what support there will be in terms of mental health support for doctors and nursing staff and so forth who have been on the front line because this is really going to affect them. You know, it is making life and death situations um, about patients that you know they will not have had to have done to the extent that they will be um, ever in their careers. And just in general, I think there's been a little, not a great understanding of the stresses and pressures that doctors and medical staff are under. It's just become a new thing. And I know with um, our mob, we're still, you know, we're still small in numbers, but for a lot of us, um, you know, we've got to work in these uh, institutions that are not exactly culturally safe for us to start with. Um, So we do that as well as tackle the same, you know, Issues that everybody else, that a doctor might face in that workplace, as well as uh, those issues, and then we often have a lot more, you know, family responsibilities and so forth as well. And I think it's really important, and definitely important to us as an organisation. Um, to make sure that we support our members to give them a safe space to you know offload to make sure that they've got that mental health support behind them because you know we we do have to deal with a lot and we are a small workforce and we need to make sure that we are there working and that for our mob at the end of the day as well.
0: Yeah, it's going, to be, um, it's going to be a long and arduous uh, journey. Are you satisfied with the amount of screening that's actually occurring in Aboriginal communities at the moment, given the, the heightened risk for our mob?
1: Yeah, look, I think at the moment, um, I think it's going to be different in each state and each place at the moment as things change, um, what public health are recommending in terms of screening. I think um, we need to make sure that you know, we are getting as soon as we get any report of a COVID case near a remote community or in a rural community, that we need to make sure that um, public health up the ante in terms of screening and start screening anyone with you know a cough, um, a temperature, a you know a anything that could suggest this virus, because we need to be right on top of it as soon as it gets anywhere near our community, so we can offer isolation which will really be difficult particularly in the remote communities where we've got overcrowding you know or but that it e- well that even goes for most of us even sometimes living in urban se- you know settings that we live in houses that you know are a little overcrowded because we've got multiple family members living with us and so forth so we need to be really um, mindful I think the government does as soon as we get um, an outbreak in an Aboriginal community or an Aboriginal person test positive that they need to up the ante and make sure that they test and screen uh, that community because it, that then gives you the opportunity to isolate it, uh, the people affected really early and stop the numbers growing for the people that will be infected. That will be the only way we can sort of stop the stop the virus, I guess, from, you know,
0: going right through the community. Yeah, the, um, the, the the thought of what it can do to some of those remote communities in particular is um, almost too much to bear. Um, yeah. But like like you said, you know, the majority of Aboriginal people live in urban centres just like everyone else, so there needs to be thought given around mm-hmm. that. Um, Tasmania's been closed off pretty much to the rest of the world for nearly, you know, nearly two weeks now, I'm guessing. Um, are, you, are you seeing um, that reflected in the data that's coming through around COVID-19? Yeah, I think we
1: had a little bit of a... Um a surge as I think people returned home with the idea that we were, uh, I think as some people put it, uh, we had a moat and we were going to use it, um, but I think so as people returned home um, from overseas and interstate, we've had a bit of a, a rise, but I think in the last few days it's sort of settled down and there's only been uh, three cases in yesterday and three cases the day before are reported. I think um, hopefully it's it's working. There is the possibility that we could have had some community, um, like person-to-person spread, possibly in the northwest of the state. um, But they're still looking into that to see if they can work out where that person may have got uh, affected. They had a health worker who turned up with a positive test a few days ago. Um, but we have seen the rates slow. I think we're up to, I think, 69 cases. But sadly, we've had um, two deaths within the last 24 hours yeah. here in the state.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's heartening to see that, you know, uh, there are some very early signs, but there's no reason, no reason to celebrate just yet, but there are some very early signs that we are flattening the curve across across the country. So... Um, there's no reason to take um, um, our foot off the throat of this thing, and people like you on, on the front line, Tanya. We, we thank you very much for the work that you do, and I wish you all the best um, over the coming weeks and months.
2: No worries, thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at
0: rrr.org.au. You are listening to Triple R one hundred two point seven FM. This is a show called The Mission. My name is Daniel James, and I have uh, my next guest on the line. Uh, Levi Mackenzie Kirkbright is a proud Aboriginal. He's a Gadigal, Ewan, Wiradjuri man, and uh, uh, hopefully, he's completing his masters in engineering at the Melbourne University <laughs> at the moment. His um, passion lies in technology entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship those French words, I really struggle with them, Um, and in Indigenous engagement with the emerging digital um, economy. Uh, In 2019, Levi was the young thinker in residence at the Youth Affairs Council of Victoria, where he penned an essay uh, entitled Sovereignty. And Levi is on the line now. Levi, welcome to the mission. Hi, thanks for having me. No worries. First of all, congratulations on the essay and congratulations on everything you're doing. Uh, When we these days do an acknowledgement of the country we say we pay our respects to elders past present and emerging well when we say emerging we mean people like you so um uh, congratulations on your journey so far
2: oh well, let's see i've got to get through a few more years <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, look after yourself wash your hands put a mask on yeah. whatever you need to do um I won't, i'm asking every guest this um during this uh pandemic uh, how, how are you coping and how's your family and how are your friends coping during these tumultuous times
2: um, I would say that um, it's stressful i'm uh, I have family members who are in high risk categories and are very concerned for them for me personally um, like I'm <laughs> young and healthy and I can work remotely so I don't have to worry too much um, but I' yeah I, I guess family is important so. Yeah, just worried
0: about that. Yeah, I think it's really important that, um, you know, we we acknowledge the anxiety that we're all under and, and, and sort of, in a way, grieve for the world that um, has gone from us for the time being, but hopefully we'll come back some, someday. So, um, you know, if anyone out there, um, you know, needs support, there is Lifeline and, and other um, uh, services available. You can call Lifeline on 13 11 uh, 14. It's always important to put that in there, I think. Um, like I said, Yeah, great. Congratulations on the on the essay. Um, let me ask you a very basic question first up. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does sovereignty mean to you?
2: I think um, that was the main question, I guess, yeah. for myself. <laughs> I, I sort of realised, like, um, the way... So I was raised with my mum, by my mum, and um, I guess my experience of being connected to... My ancestry, my country, um, was something that I sort of took for granted, but later like, understood that it was something deeply meaningful to be connected to the people that were here the tens of thousands of years before the arrival of Europeans. Um and i got challenged by this question when i realized just like this massive divide between like what actual political like concretely what political sovereignty means for a people um in like the modern world between that and like like social structures that we have in indigenous communities around like Eldership, or it's called gerontocracy mm. or, like, um, the way kinship systems work um, and that sort of stuff. And I, I just sort of, like, realised, like, I, one, don't know what sovereignty means except insofar as in the European intellectual tradition it roughly equates to um, some sort of institution, say a state, um, having... Um, in political is called the legitimate right to the use of force or the legitimate right to the use of violence. So the state, say, the Australian federal government or, like, a state, New South Wales, has the right to use violence against you as a citizen, say, locking you in a cell because you've done something outside of a social contract. Um, but they also have, like, the right to use violence against, like, foreign invaders in defending this soil. And when I started learning about those, I just realised, like, that is so far from, like, that is just so far from the pre-contact European cultures, mm. and, uh, pre-European contract Indigenous cultures, and also, like, post-contact, um, sort of post-colonial Aboriginal cultures that I grew up with in New South Wales. I just realised, like, there's, there's actually, like, uh, just an, something missing here. When I work, like when I hear the notion spiritual sovereignty or sovereignty with regards to a nation-state, like, they're just extremely different. They like were talking about two different things.
0: So is, is sovereignty for our mob in some sort of way um, imposing or trying to impose uh, the traditional values and the traditional ways of life that we had pre-colonialism? Is that the challenge? Um
2: yeah I, I in some ways yes in in some ways it's a res- like sovereignty the idea that a particular First Nation has sovereignty is what legitimises what's called like agreement making yeah. so um, a, like an indigenous community say Yong'u um, have the right to agreement making say with like um the companies that set up the bauxite mines um, back in the 80s, like, they could only do that because on some level, like, those corporations, which were from Europe, I think that was Swiss companies, um, like, they recognised the only people as having sovereignty and therefore, like, a right to be included in negotiations and agreement-making, not just the Northern Territory government. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, And so what does that mean with regards to, like, especially me as a young person trying to learn this stuff coming through, like to bring traditional values to like a giant multinational corporation, like that seems really like jarring. I'm still like figuring it out. And that's why I look to people like the Yongu or like the mob in the central desert who who are trying to make inroads with this stuff. Um,
0: you argue yeah, I'm sorry, you,
2: you, it's not not more concrete. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you,
0: you, you've, you've actually really articulated the the challenge and how um, alien the two worlds are. You know. Um, yeah.
2: The the more I learn, like the more I just see these things as like two radically different ways of experiencing the world. Even just in the order statement from the heart, it says our our sovereignty is a spiritual notion. But like your negotiating say with the commonwealth of australia which is a secular state <laughs> like it's inherently aspiritual yep so you're just like talking past each other
0: on yeah, yeah how, how do you how do you you know articulate and in, embed that um that that spirituality into the constitution and in, into the structure of our parliament you know yeah it's a, it's a it's a big big ask and i think you're right i think um there is a lot of talking past each other at the moment, and we'll see what the various uh, treaty processes around the country uh, and bring on, as well.
2: On some level, the Western tradition, like the modern post-alignment Western tradition, would argue that you should not have a spiritual system like embedded into the state, because that would break like ideas around the separation of church and state, or more generally, separation of church and a particular spiritual system. Because like now, in 2020, like, we're a country of 25 million people with many different spiritual beliefs and cultural backgrounds and stuff. And why should one spiritual system
0: be embedded in the constitution, not others? You're, you're right in there say so you're actually arguing this, so that a lot of First Nations people don't actually seem to know what sovereignty means. Do you want to expand on that?
2: Yeah, I think, like, um, uh, so I should preface this with saying that the essay was. As much a self-reflection as it mm-hmm. was, yeah, absolutely, a social commentary, absolutely. Um, like, I feel like the starting premise of a people that regard themselves as sovereign is that they don't need to act in deference to some like validating authority. And I feel as though in Indigenous affairs, at least down here in Victoria and New South Wales, where I spent a lot of my time is, like, we're always acting in response to, like, the coloniser, right. <laughs> essentially. Like, yep. we, we have Sorry Day or, like, Invasion... Sorry, sorry, we have Invasion Day or Survival Day, or that's in response to Australia Day. We have, like, Reconciliation, which is us trying to reconcile in response to, like, being invaded. And we have, even, like, NADOC last week was Truth Treaty Voice... And it's like, well, truth about being invaded, treaty with somebody, with, like, foreign occupa- foreign occupiers and voice to people who don't want to listen to us. Like, it's always in response. And I, I just think, like, well, if I'm sovereign, then I can speak to other Indigenous people as if, like, we understand that this is a form of, so- like, 250 years of foreign occupation, but... I don't need to like bring that into my identity as an indigenous person. Like it stands independently of like the Australian state and
0: all that sort of stuff. You make that you make that point very strong strongly in the essay which is available at uh, yavic.org.au. You just go in there and you can search and find it and have a read for yourself. But you make the point very strongly that uh, why should we seek validation from from the colonial state?
2: Yeah, and that's a that's a challenge to Indigenous peoples. Like, what Eddie Mabo did fundamentally was he exposed the fundamental lie at the root of this country, which is still, like, permeating to this day through, like, a lot of things. And the fundamental lie is that, like, either we didn't exist or we existed in a way that didn't have sovereignty. And when we start like, getting rid of that lie for ourselves, um, like, how do I put it? Um, I feel, like, more at ease mm. with being a First Nations person and what that means. I don't have to, like, think
0: of myself as, like, colonised. Yeah, right. Yeah, that that that's a really really good point. I really encourage people to go and read read the essay. Um, it's a very nuanced uh, essay. It's a, it's a, it is an essay of um uh, reflection, and, and we you know you read it and you hear a voice that is um uh, you know for one of a better term emerging someone that is um you know a voice that is finding its own way through this very 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 complex world, and um, in my opinion, making making a really really good go of it. Um, it is 7 to 8 here on uh, the mission. I'm speaking with Levi mckenzie Um Before I let you go, what's, what's next in the, um, in the works for you, Levi? What's, what's coming up in this crazy world of ours for you?
2: Well, at the moment, I am <laughs> bunkering down. No, I, um, <laughs> I am going back to university next semester to finish off my master's. And then um, I'm working um, as well at a place called the Indigenous Data Network, So we're looking at how we can empower Indigenous communities through data um, to be able to, like, basically make better decisions at a community level using data that they have about their community, such, like, for example, public health data. Um, And, yeah, that's a nice way of, like, trying to bring my tech stuff into, like, it can be used for mob, I guess, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, we'll get you back on and in the studio to talk about that uh, in detail um, some other time, um, hopefully. But um, until then, thank you very much for your time and um, look after yourself, please.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Take care of yourself. No worries.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the triple R website.